Hello, and welcome to episode 119 of the CogniCast, the podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. This week marks the second outing of Karen Meyer as CogniCast host. This week, Karen is talking to Creighton Kirkendall. But before we get started, we do have a few events to mention. First, there's a closure bridge happening in Boston on March 17th. In case you don't know, Closure Bridge is dedicated to increasing diversity within the programming community by offering free beginner-friendly closure programming workshops to people from underrepresented groups. And I can tell you from personal experience, Closure Bridge workshops are a whole lot of fun as well. There's also the Closure D conference happening on February 25th in Berlin, Germany. Closure D is an independent nonprofit conference from the closure community for the closure community. If you have a closure related event you would like us to mention, please drop us a line at podcast at cognitech.com. Well, that's about it. So on the Karen and Creighton and episode 119 of the Cognicast. Today is January 27th, and this is the Cognicast. I'm Karen Meyer, and today it's my great pleasure to welcome Creighton Kirkendall to the show. Thank you for being with us, Creighton. Cool. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very excited to um, have you here on the show, especially since uh, you're you from my hometown, <laughs> Cincinnati, <laughs> Ohio, with me, so it's kind of exciting. Yes, we, we, we are definitely evangelists for closure here in Cincy, so I, I'm excited to do this. <laughs> cool. Um, so as we begin every Cognitech cast, um, we start off with an art question. Uh, so I'd like to ask you if you would like to relate some experience of art, whatever that means to you. Well, uh, it's interesting, but I actually got into computers because I could draw. Um, I never intended to be a programmer. Cool. Uh, <laughs> I actually wanted to minor in art and be a chemistry major. I was actually working at career services as a freshman at Wright State University, and they found out I could draw. And I actually did portraits for people and used to give them as gifts. So one day I was filing papers, and they actually had a database report they had asked for. At this point, I didn't own a computer, and I didn't even know anything about computers. <laughs> the most I'd ever used them was to actually draw on them. I used to do like artwork, like cartoons, but I would do them one pixel at a time and paint. <laughs> oh, yeah. like the idea of doing that now just absolutely is crazy, but I used to love it. I used to do it all the time. So they found out I could draw, and they got this database report, and they were arguing over it, and the network engineer was trying to help them, and... I walked over and I looked at it and I said, this is what I would ask for if I, if I was trying to get what you're looking for. Um, and then the next day, the network engineer came up to me and asked if I wanted to be his assistant and to help them build a website because he knew I could draw and he knew that I had some technical aptitude. At the time, I had none, zero. But wow. I was like, sure, why not? <laughs> because... 
I, I, I was good at math and stuff like that. So he was like, you could do this. No problem. So, um, things got a blur after that. I actually stayed as I was a comprehensive education and chemistry major. And I stayed in that for the next year. But by the end of that year, I was actually over at NCR writing software for them. Oh, wow. So I ended up uh, switching majors into math because I liked it a lot better. And eventually I kept the math degree and eventually went on to get a computer science degree. But it really all started filing papers in career services at Wright State. <laughs> I, I just love hearing stories about um, people's um, past to where they are because it's not always a straight road. It's uh, kind of windy. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it was crazy because I, I got in at NCR with a great group of people. I mean, they were they were phenomenal and they taught me an enormous amount uh, and basically let me do way more than anybody should have ever let me do. <laughs> oh my gosh, if I think back to the code I wrote, oh, I just want to crawl under the desk. <laughs> I can't believe they let me do it. But they taught me a lot. Like one of the guys I worked with was actually part of the team that did ARPANET. Uh, and the the just the discussions that we would have to this day, they're, they're some of the greatest learning experiences I had. Um, NCR had some rough times and stuff and they actually... Uh, one of the guys there got me on at a startup oh. down in Cincinnati, and that's how I ended up relocating down here. Oh, wow. I, I wasn't aware. Yeah, for um, some of the listeners, they might not be familiar with um, NCR. Yes, NCR, they used to create ATMs, and they actually developed computers for a while. They were a big comp competitor of IBM back in the heyday. Ah, uh, okay. Like it's, it's National Cash Register. Oh, well. that's right. <laughs> All your point of sale devices and stuff, you'll see a little NCR tag on a lot of them. Yeah, I um, when we uh, we've known each other for a while now, but um, when we first met, I was amazed by your um, art ability, and um, I, I think it might be a little known fact to the listeners out there that <laughs> that you are responsible for the foreclosure logo. Oh my goodness! I knew that was going to come up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> The foreclosure dragon. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The dragon logo. I have to kind of chuckle. I actually did a ton of logos for them. I probably did, I don't know, probably 15 different logos. And the, the dragon was done as a joke. I'll admit. Like at the end, I sent, uh, I think it was David. Mm -hmm. Like uh, I sent him a note. I says, uh, here's one. I figure everybody likes dragons and pirates. And I sent that over. And that was the one they picked. <laughs> I, I thought I it was cool. Never, yes. Uh, <laughs> But there was a lot more like, you know, I was trying to be all professional and that's and the real the reality was that fit that site way more way better and the people involved in it. So Yeah, yeah, it's it's awesome. So uh, there there you go. Little, little known fact. <laughs> <laughs> mm. So uh yeah, so closure. Um yeah, just a little bit about we've talked about how you've gotten into programming, but um, what about like closure specifically? What were you doing before you got into closure, and and you know how did how did that happen? Um, I've always been a bit of a language nerd. Um, I started out in Perl, then did a lot of um, VB.net at NCR, and even some uh, Cold Fusion. Um, uh, but I got hooked into Java uh, near my tail end NCR and built Java systems for the next like 16 years. 
I was an architect in Java. Um, I enjoyed that. I, I did, but I was playing with languages all the time because uh, I even wrote a few languages just messing around. Um, We're going to come back to that because I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> but I kept coming back to, like, if you look at Enterprise Java and when you're dealing with large systems, like, there's this idea of trying to figure out how to make things composable and, and, and so that you can plug and play and basically trying to create these Lego blocks. Um, but it, it's, it's fairly challenging. And there's a lot of stuff that has to go in at, 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 at that in the OO world. Um, so I started hearing more and more about these functional programming. Uh, and in particular about a language called Scala. Uh, so I was like, wow, I need to learn this functional programming because it seems to solve a lot of the problems that I am trying to get uh, architects and stuff to understand. It seems to know. So I started diving into Scala. I wrote a system in Scala, and it it turned out I went and looked at other people's code in Scala, and I couldn't even read it. Um, <laughs> it's because I thought I knew Scala. Mm -hmm. What I didn't know was how to program functionally. <laughs> mm. uh, so I didn't know anything about it. I was like, I was basically taking my knowledge from Java and trying to write Scala, and I realized that to write it correctly there was a whole nother world under the covers mm -hmm. and the way that they were writing was a lot more composable like they they could like things just sort of flowed a lot better and I tried to write that way but I kept falling back on like my old things because it was easy to do so one day I stumbled across a lisp written for the JVM and I'm like well that would force me to do it <laughs> Like that would force me to do it. I wouldn't, there's no going back at that point. I'm like, I'm in Lisp world. So I started looking at Clojure. At first, I did not realize that Clojure was like a, a, like a full language that was going to like, you know, take over things like it did. I, I was just sort of, I wanted something to play with. Um, I actually went through the first three lectures of the Berkeley's introduction to programming because they're done in scheme. Mm, okay. And that is actually how I went to that so I could read closure code. And then from that, I actually ended up, my very first closure program was a part of speech tagger that eventually became a, um, like, it, it grew into like a syntax checker. Not, not a syntax, but a, a, a grammar checker, yeah. Nice. No, so, so part of speech, uh, yeah, my English background or, you know, with, from school isn't great. So that would be like nouns and, and verbs and like looking at sentences. Is that what that was? Yes. It basically, like I can, I am horrible in English. Um, I was diagnosed at five with dyslexia. So oh, okay. I am really bad at sort of like the language side of things. So now I'm fairly good now, but I, I mean, the startup I worked for was a lot of English majors and communications majors. So I learned a lot on the, the job to try to remove the red that came back on some of the things that I used to. Part of why I picked that first is I had tried to write it in Java. I tried to write a part of speech tagger and a grammar checker in Java that would catch the problems I had. Like, because dyslexia has some interesting things in that it's, it, it doesn't just like it's not that you just misspell things. It it turns out that the types of problems that you have, um, they're very uniform, and they're fairly common amongst people with dyslexia. 
like endings of words are a struggle. Like for some reason, I don't see them. I don't type them. I don't like ing's, ends, es's, and those. They when I'm typing, they don't come out. Uh-huh. They just don't, and I don't see them when I read them. Like why? I don't know. I, I haven't figured that out. But after talking to a few other people that I have dyslexia, it turns out that's that's a very common thing. Hmm. So things like a context-sensitive spell checker. Mm-hmm. That would actually spell check, but in context. So it knew that it was a verb or it knew what it was. So the first thing I had to do is write the part of speech tagger to be able to pull that off. And I tried to write it in Java, but it's not a trivial thing to try to write. Java. No, I, I think there's whole fields of, of study devoted to this there. <laughs> so, but in closure, for some reason, closure worked in my brain. And part of that is I, I definitely lean mathematical and like I loved closure because it was like the shortest distance between the way my brain worked and getting the stuff on the on the the screen like typing. So I I sort of worked out the algorithm for how to actually do it and over the course of I think 4 days I wrote a part of speech tagger in closure and it was 89 lines of code. Wow. <laughs> And I was so proud of it. Now it was written in scheme format. Like it was like, cause I don't, I didn't really know closure at the time. I only knew mm-hmm. scheme from the three lectures. So, so everything was, was, was structured a little weird and I, I've cleaned it up since, um, I actually did a talk recently, um, like an intro to statistical learning where I actually used it as the basis for the, the talk. But, but I ended up, I ended up building a, a cool little grammar checker and the grammar checker even works in uh, closure script. Nice. Like it exports out. So, and I do use it. Nice. Uh, which is funny. Like, I do cut and paste a lot of my emails over into it to make sure that I don't screw up and haven't done horrible things. Now, Google has gotten a lot better. Like, Google's like checker is probably the most biggest uh, a godsend to to someone like me because like every time I go to type in any field, it it highlights when it thinks it's wrong. Yeah, I appreciate that too. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so I, I didn't want to lose a thought because when you were saying that, I went, oh, I want to come back to that. Um, you said you uh, wrote some languages? Oh, yes. The very first open source stuff I did was actually a tiny little math language where it was for me and a guy out of, he was out of Melbourne, Australia. He was actually from mainland China, but was studying at the University of Melbourne. And he wanted to, he was in bioinformatics. And he wanted to basically write something that would allow him to do statistical stuff. What he was looking for was NumPy. (laughs) That's what he was looking for. Um, At the time, like this was in 1999. Uh Uh-huh. So it was prior to, to, to a lot of, and I didn't know Lisp. I didn't know a lot of things. So what I wrote was something that looked a lot like Java, operated slightly different with a little bit of MATLAB and, and Mathematica thrown in to try to make it a little easier to deal with things. Uh, but it was horrible. Like, it was just a horrible language. Um, <laughs> and that's when he discovered Python. Ah, okay. Uh, and we both agreed that this project should probably die. <laughs> That was way better. <laughs> did, did you learn some lessons from, from writing that? Yeah, I, I did. I learned a ton of things. In fact, from that day forward, how I actually learned new languages was implementing Lisp and stuff in them, like trying to implement a little language. 
Okay. Like just a little scripting line. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, after I'd learned closure, I started implementing Lisp in every language. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know why. There's just something really cool about like when you go to implement a Lisp, like no one realizes that you can do it with just like a tiny, tiny subset of, of, of functions. Like there's there's only like six uh, uh, like special forms and a tiny, tiny little piece of code to to do to implement a Lisp and it, it's a thing of beauty. <laughs> yeah, L- Lisps uh, definitely that is one of the qualities that I, I love about it is the simplicity. Yeah. So uh, we talked about uh, how you got into Clojure and since then you've actually been doing quite a bit of open source uh, work and uh, you have uh, a few projects out there that are um, very useful and popular in, in particular um, I think there's, there's, is it Q, how you pronounce it? I'm not sure. It's K-I-O-O. <laughs> I say Kio. Kio, okay. <laughs> However, I've been told that that's not really how you're supposed to pronounce it, but that's how I pronounce it. But I, it, it's basically Swahili for Mir. Um, ah, okay. Uh, but the idea is, is that it it is taking, it is allowing your data to basically um uh, be transformed into using HTML. So it, it's like the mirror of the data, a different transformation, a different view of the data. So that was the idea behind it. How did, how did that come about? Well, that started out, like Keo came out uh, more as a reaction to me finding React mm. um, and some discussions with David Nolan um, and finding out, uh, but it's response because I wrote in focus. And then Focus has the same idea, but it's not React-based. So it is more of a traditional sort of model of sort of DOM manipulation versus React's model, which is the whole DOM diff style. Mm-hmm. But they're very similar in how you use them, mm-hmm. like in Focus. And I actually still use in Focus for all my testing because I actually render the stuff using React and then test it using Focus. Oh, interesting. So, and in Focus, like the idea is, is that I allow a designer to design like static HTML, like a walkthrough, but then I can actually take that and directly bring it in and transform it using something similar to in live, um, which for those that are familiar with in live, if you think about it, it's a transform language um, uh, that was designed by Christoph Grand um, that allows very similar things like, uh, XSLT is probably the closest thing you can think of to a transform language, but this is a programming transform language. So it's much easier to use. It uses basically CS3 selectors or XPath selectors that allow you to basically compose transforms. Uh, But I did this actually as a response to, I was giving a talk on Clojure uh, and introducing ClojureScript the very first time I introduced ClojureScript. And I was in a room full of Java developers, and one of them asked a simple question, how do I integrate a designer into this? Because what I was showing was Hiccup. Mm. Um, and like, developer like, productivity has always been like a big like, focus of mine. So like, when I looked at it, I'm like, really, you need to be able to sort of let the designer do what they want to do and let the developer do what they're good at. Like, mm-hmm. I want to do is basically take what the designer has and basically put 
my data into it the way I would expect to. So, so the workflow then would be the designer can just make their mockups in like whatever they're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And then the developer takes that and then can transform those static pages. And yeah, they actually it. get, they get compiled and brought in and it, in essence, it compiles the transform so that it'll go get the CSS three selectors, find the little bits and pieces and replace them. Oh, okay. Like, in real time. Now, what's interesting is I spent quite a bit of time thinking about this problem and I was actually sitting at Closure Conj back in, was it 2010? <laughs> uh, it was time 2010 flies. or 11. <laughs> I was sitting at Closure Conj and um, I was sitting next to, uh, I think, Sean Corfield um, was sitting next to me and we were actually discussing Cold Fusion because I had done Cold Fusion. But he showed me his, uh, um, he was building a, a, a web framework uh, that was similar to the Cold Fusion framework for Clojure. And he showed me, but he, what I saw out of that, he showed, introduced me to in live. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was looking at it and I'm like, that's what I need. I need that in Clojure script. <laughs> that's what I need. I need that. That's exactly what I'm looking for. Um, and actually, I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, but he was actually from Neo uh, Columbus. Okay. After that, we were discussing how to actually implement that enclosure script with him. And he, we both went back and forth on a couple different things. Um, and he said him and another guy had actually attempted it. So after that, I was off between Christmas and New Year's. And I sat down and wrote in focus. Nice. From Christmas and New Year's. And it, it just worked. It, in fact, it was probably like that. That was one of the things where I realized just how important ClojureScript could be, because it was the beginning of understanding that ClojureScript allowed you to build abstractions that just weren't possible before. Like the compile time macros and stuff like that allowed you to do things that no other language has. In essence, like it, it made it made it so much easier for me to build sites and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I started doing all kinds of things in ClojureScript. Um, and then React came along, and I wanted the same thing, so Keo was born. <laughs> and Keo was a lot harder because that is that's a full compiler. Like it 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 was a lot more difficult to to build. Um, like, but it like, turned out really nice. So you used your kind of experience with Enfocus, and then you were able to build out Keo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I've used it on a on a couple projects, and it is very nice. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's good. So you've also been busy uh, doing some other things lately too. I've noticed on your your GitHub, uh, there's a project that has to do with some games. Pele. Um, Pele is actually, it's a game engine. Um, and what's on Master is just a very simple game engine that allows you to build little Mario style games and there's very rudimentary physics. But there is a branch that actually has a full immutable 2D physics engine built into it and it wow. runs in, it now runs in both closure closure script and hopefully closure CLR here soon wow um, <laughs> so it, it it actually is a full 2D uh, physics it does like it, it's a full engine like like I can build pretty much any game in it at this point um, there's some some basic things that I want more uh, sort of things like springs. I want to add springs in. Um, and I started to, but I haven't got the time because 
there's a lot of things that have been taking my free time recently. I coach wrestling. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah, so, like, I coach soccer and wrestling for years, so I'm like, they definitely consume some of my time when I'm not programming. Sure. So, I, I know... Um... I've ha I've worked like a little tiny bit kind of with the the games industry, and I know that that speed is really important in like games and game engines. Um, and you were talking about immutability. Like, uh, how 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 did you balance the two? And have you have, have you been able to get good performance with the immutability? Uh, that was definitely the big challenge. Uh, and there were certain things I did at first, like I built the immutable thing, but I couldn't get great performance. Like I actually used Core Matrix to build it mm -hmm. uh, because it now works in ClojureScript. I'm like, sure, we're gonna do that. But it turns out that uh, the type checking and stuff slowed things down. But mm -hmm. once I actually sort of worked that out and sort of optimized a few things, there's still a lot that can be optimized, but I, I get well more than 60 frames a second. Wow. I don't like it, it. It turns out that the, the JavaScript, the um, virtual machines like uh, JavaScript Core and uh, V8, have advanced to the point where I, you can, like they're they're stripping out a lot of these like 2D physics engines that are written in Java that are highly optimized. Um, they're really really fast now. This one, it's not as fast, but it is close to most of them. Like it's within an, like maybe two times the 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 the, the speed of most of the engines that I've tested it with. Nice. But so so what what um what advantage then does the, the mutability give you in the games oh, engine? Uh, most of it is around how to debug. Like I can have a time travel debugger. Um, like and that's really the the thing with Pele that why I had to write my own 2D physics engine because that sounds crazy and it, <laughs> for the most part it is <laughs> for math nerds it's like oh that's awesome like and I, I'm a math nerd so I was having fun with it but like to write one it's 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 not a trivial task and it, and it takes a takes a fair amount of time so once I, I did it I did it because I wanted my time travel debugger which I had written for the original payload which allows me to basically run the game and I can stop the game at any point and back up and fix bugs and then press play and it'll it'll continue on as if uh, uh, from the point that I backed up to only with the new code. Nice. So I basically can do live editing and actually back up so if like if a collision if a collision doesn't do what I want let's say you know Mario go jumps on a Goomba or whatever and he doesn't like you know squash <laughs> that's bad so we back it up and I can fix the code and then press play and all of a sudden you know he squashes the um, that's really fun like that's why I actually built the, the 2D so that I could basically still have that ability but have some much more sophisticated uh, 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 physics like so I could do a lot more different types of games so, like, what what sorts of games are you interested in? Uh, I got, I, I I mean, I've got a bunch of little ideas that I play around with. Um, some some of them are just like uh, like one idea is where uh, if you think about it, you have just it's just a ball traveling in space, but it has to stay in contact with a wall to get power, and if it runs out of power, you die. 
But here's the catch. The catch is it's, it's a magnet, and you get to decide which floor is magnetized. Oh. And if it hits tar- certain things, it gets demagnetized, and you can lose power and stuff. So that's kind of cool. There's some other network games. Like I have a game called Flu Wars that my kids want me very badly to build. That's a much more complicated, but man, would it be fun. Like it's going to have like, you know, poofball type characters and they got a battle and, you know, they're a little bit cannibalistic. So they got, <laughs> you know, those type of things. <laughs> Very cute. Cannibalistic kids game. Yes, of course. Exactly. <laughs> you can see why my kids would love it. They're like, yeah, cannibalistic cute things. Sure. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, uh, there's all sorts of games out there right now that are just crazy with their graphics and also now just with the, like the artificial intelligence behind them. Um, so that that's kind of a crazy component of games. And I, and I think that's uh, some aspect that you're interested in as well, right? Yes, uh, I definitely have been diving deep into the AI for about the last nine months. Um, and a lot of it's driven Again, because of the, the sort of natural language stuff that I did a while back with the part of speech and stuff. So I started in that. Um, but the more I've gotten into like the deep learning stuff, the more like game I, AI, all of that, I, 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 I'm beginning to understand how it all works. Um, it's hooked me forever, though. Like, I'm used to being able to, like, with programming, because we all sort of speak the same language, I can pick up a new programming language and I can sit there, go through it. But for, like, deep learning, you're reading academic papers, uh, and a lot of them. And unfortunately, the language they use in that industry is completely different than what I was used to, <laughs> even coming from a math background. Like, it just it took me a while like just to get used to the terminology and one paper would lead to another paper which would lead to another paper and you had to go back in time in order to sort of understand where the origins of some of these ideas came from in order to understand where they were today uh, and I'm still on that journey um, like I definitely have gotten like delusions of grandeur right now I'm trying to build a, a, a go AI <laughs> go AI. What what does that mean? Like for for the for the game for the go? Game you go. mean? Oh, like, oh, okay. Uh, you I mean... came up a way to use use convolutional nets to to sort of represent the, the probability of the next move. And I'm oh. like, wow, I could use that as sort of like a, a beam search, oh. which I know may make sense to some some of you. But the idea would be like you have you use the the convolutional net, which is just basically just takes a picture of the board and figures out the patterns on the board. Mm-hmm. And if you feed it enough games, it'll tell you the probability that the winning a winning move or the next best move, it'll tell you the list of moves in probability order. So you can then take like the top four moves oh, okay. and do it again. Okay. In essence, it, it's constraining the search space because Go has like you know billions and billions of, of, of its search space is so huge. That's what makes it difficult. Um, it's kind of like chess, only way more uh, uh, dimensions as far as ha- how much the search space is. So this would allow you to sort of constrain it and create sort of a beam search. Oh, okay. Whether I can do that with, like, like, I did calculations up. I can only probably look five or six ahead on my laptop with the method that I'm doing. But, like, if I had a thousand machines, I could really have a really... <laughs> 
<laughs> you, you just need Google's resources, right? That's what I said. I'm like, <laughs> I'm actually later on today. I'm actually talking with a company who who's specializing in, in sort of a supercomputer architecture for data centers. And like, we're we're going to be talking closure and stuff. And, um, I, I half joked with them. I says, you know what? You have all the resources that I need. <laughs> we 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 can make something magical here. <laughs> So, so if something comes out there and is uh, beating Google's DeepMind Go champion, and they don't know what it is, <laughs> we 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 know where to point, right? Oh, that would be so cool. <laughs> that that may be beyond 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 my ability. I really just want something that can beat me, which I'm pretty sure won't be too difficult. <laughs> if I then can put it on some of the Cognitech Go people, that that that'll be even more fun. <laughs> Quite a few people at uh, Cognitech that are um, very into Go. Um, I know Fogus and, and David Nolan are a, a couple of them. So um, I, I really have no idea what's going on. <laughs> and I know there's stones and they move around, but uh, um, I'd be glad of an AI to help me out with any moves if I have to play. <laughs> I, I literally have learned it, learned the basic rules within the last three weeks, like last month. Like I came up with the idea of how, and I really didn't understand Go. And I started just playing a little bit and reading. So I had to come up with the rules in order to sort of, you know, parse boards and do all that stuff. Um, so I am just beginning to understand. It is really complicated. Are there any resources that you would uh, recommend for someone that's interested in learning the game and learning the rules? Um, actually, there, there was... Uh, I can't off the top of my head. But well, we can I, we can post them later after the show. I, too. I absolutely ha have a list that I use. Like, there's one that that basically is an online that goes through like the very basics, and like it's interesting is that goes broken down into like these patterns, and they're they're called they're they're like problems that you solve. So if you see this pattern, here's how you respond to it. Um, so and there's this whole level system that the fact that you know how to respond to a certain pattern and you can recognize it and that really tells how good you are at Go in, in a way. Uh, so there's some resources that go through like the first level of patterns, but it was while looking at that that I realized, wow, you could build an AI because AIs are great at recognizing patterns. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like that's something they do well. But that's sort of a journey. It's an ongoing thing when I get free time. Like yeah. this weekend, I'll be working on it, but <laughs> I don't have any wrestling tournaments. It's the first weekend in a while without wrestling tournaments. So, so what um, other um, things in AI are you interested in, other than um, the the Go stuff? Definitely some of the natural language stuff. Um, I know that 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 a lot of the deep deep learning stuff um, that's that's more associated with things like convolutional networks and recursive networks, which are starting to be used in in some of the natural language space, but there's a lot in the natural language space that is uh, that isn't deep learning. That it, it's more statistical based, or while it is net, neural networks, they're much simpler. Um, so a lot of the Stanford tools and stuff. Um, so I'm trying to. So what Stanford tools are you talking about? Uh, there's a couple of different ones, like the part of speech tagger from Stanford is really nice. A lot of the stuff out of Stanford, like I've been going actually through the lectures for even their AI and deep learning classes mm -hmm. uh, because they're online and they're great resources. Are they free? Uh, absolutely. Wow. You can just okay. 
you can go onto YouTube and and watch them. Uh, so I, I've been going through those. Uh, now they aren't for the faint of heart in the fact that they like I I will watch one and then I have to go watch several other YouTube videos <laughs> in order to remind myself how to do some of the math. Like I had to I had to re relearn some calculus and relearn you know things like gradient descent and and logistical regression and stuff like that stuff that I knew from school but when you've been away from it a long time you don't remember that you know that stuff <laughs> I, I'm reminded of that every time I have to help my kids with homework I'm like how do oh, you yeah. do long division again <laughs> yes so I, I definitely I've spent a lot of time just watching other YouTube videos but basically I use those to tell me what I should go look for uh, and learn in order to move on to the next lecture <laughs> so it's a very slow process but it's been it's been very rewarding and um, the Stanford's are some of the better ones like I've gone through I've looked at a couple different ones the Stanford ones are really good like they have a deep learning one that I thought so far has been really good um, I've been enjoying it um, but I use I, some of their Stanford it's called Stanford NLP which is the natural language stuff um, like you can you can actually research it but it does all kinds of things like one of the things that I really wanted to understand was how to extract knowledge like it's one thing to say that's a noun that's a verb it's a whole nother thing to say you know David runs fast implies that David can run mm -hmm. like and what does that mean um, it's a whole different thing to sort of extract relationships and understand that. And there's tools in that that I've played around with recently that, uh, while they're not perfect, um, do a really good job of sort of extracting knowledge relationships. Um, so uh, there's a couple of different tools. I'm trying to remember. Um, they all have like acronyms. So there's like NER which is name entity recognition, oh, which right. mm -hmm. replaces pronouns. Mm -hmm. So that's like the first step. And then the next is, next, next one is uh, ERD, entity, entity relationship something. Um, but it's what runs after you replace all the pronouns. Oh, but it basically okay. returns for a sentence an actual like tuple that says here is the subject and a relationship to another object and you can use that as the basis to sort of build things like expert systems and stuff hmm. but then you now are starting to build up knowledge that okay if this implies this this implies this you can then use that to feed a system that can then get smarter maybe it can use those relationships and some other AI to basically write things like news like <laughs> stuff like that like those types of things. Yeah, uh, yeah. The language is such a tricky thing, though, and especially English. I, I, you know, I have a hard time just understanding it myself. Trying to teach a computer to understand it is. <laughs> yes, I would absolutely agree with that. Like it is, I, the one thing that that surprised me the most is I have spent an enormous amount of time over the years because of this whole grammar thing, like with dyslexia trying to figure out English and the fact that I can teach a computer to understand it better than me blows my mind. <laughs> it absolutely, like it's one of those things where like when that grammar checker worked, I was just like, I have done magic. Like, cause to me it's magic. 
Like, because I can't do it. Like, I, I may even know the rules, but I can't see the problems. Yeah. And it just doesn't. Like, it, it, it is, it's one of those things that AI sometimes can look like magic. Like, it really can. Especially to, to, to in places where, like, people struggle. Like, there are things that we're great at that we can see. But for things like natural language, the beauty of things like part of speech tagger, I, I am shocked at how good things have gotten. Like, Google's new engine is now as good as people at, at actually parse, parsing speech. Are you talking about like for corrections or for translation to a different language? I guess both, right? It, their core thing, their their parse tree that basically says like subject that tells you the structure of a sentence, including all of its parts of speech, um, is is extremely close to the the closest you can get to consensus among experts. Wow! Like if you sat down, you know, like a hundred English majors and had them diagram these sentences they'll probably be within 97%. And it's darn close to 97%. Wow. Yeah, so. I, I wonder how it handles. I, I guess it's smart enough that it handles it. But you're talking about the context, you know, like a word and you know, I'm blanking out a, an example of words, but a word could mean different things depending on the context. I wonder how it figures that out. <laughs> well, yeah, like their setup, it doesn't, while it is a, a it's it's a recursive neural network that they're using, uh, and the, similar to like my idea on the the Go thing, they basically use like a beam search, mm. which actually is actually how you do it on the statistical side too. Like you use a a beam search to basically narrow down the probability stream that you're looking at. So can you remind me again what exactly is a beam search? Ah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, a beam search. A beam search is it, it. All it is is that let's say that like a best way to look at it is if you're driving in a car. All right, a beam search basically says instead of saying I got to get from point A to point B and I'm going to check every road. No, I know the general direction I should travel. Mm, okay. And if I know the general direction I should travel, if I just limit my search to always be facing that general direction. I may not hit the optimal, but I will get close. Okay. Um, so that's the idea. The idea is is that you're narrowing down the search space. So in like if you think about when you're driving, it's simply saying, "All right, I know this is east, so I'm gonna try to stay going east. Uh, so I'm gonna okay. limit I'm gonna limit my turns and roads so that I you know I don't I don't want to turn west, so I won't turn west." So it just says I'm, I'm limiting the space. That's sort of constraining the beam. Now, what makes it, why they call it a beam search is you can actually, like, if you have, like, ten choices, you may say, I only want to take the top three choices. And the top three are based off criteria. How close to east is it? Mm. If I, I want to take these three roads, how close to where, how, how much are they facing the object that I'm trying to go towards? I see. So the size of the beam is basically the, 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 the size of the number of roads you're willing to check to go down to see if they're going in the right direction. I see. Okay. Huh. I know I've heard of it a lot, but I, I could never remember <laughs> what, I, which I, one it is. So. I didn't actually know what it was. I actually implemented it in that in that uh, uh, part of speech tagger, and I didn't realize that's what it was. Oh, nice! I only knew later on that that like when I was reading other AI stuff and they were describing it, I realized it was the exact same algorithm. 
and they called it a beam search. Um, but it, 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 it's a fairly common in AI because a lot of our challenges in AI is trying to narrow the, the search space. Yeah. Because if you're trying to figure out even, <clears throat> I just, a lot of it is trying to narrow down the search space. If you think about logistical regression is used a lot to try to figure out what are the highest probability things and rank them. Mm-hmm. The idea there is, is that, all right, you can actually feed that back through uh, 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 the thing with just the top items to actually tell you how what your beam is, those type of things. So there's a lot of things that use this type of, of search mechanism. So uh, is that like optimization? I guess that would be like a, is that an optimization method? In oh, yeah. The, okay. Like for that part of speech tagger, it was interesting. Like when I first wrote it, I didn't have the beam search in, and it basically just did a full. Like if you think about, like okay, this word has these three things it could be. It could be a noun, it could be a verb, it could be an adjective, whatever. And the next word has these three things, and you're basically looking for the highest probability trajectory for the entire sentence. Like what's the highest probability if you look at all the words and all the types that they have? What is the highest probability of all the combination? Mm-hmm. Well, that is an uh, uh, like in factorial. <laughs> so it, it really quickly explodes, like really quickly. So I ended up with, oh, let's see, when I like I first did it, like a, a long sentence. Like I was doing small sentences, I was doing small sentences, but then I typed a long one, and suddenly, I think I sat there for a minute. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, this isn't going to work. This can't be how people do. <laughs> it ain't going to work. So I started thinking about how do I actually pull this off? Um, and I came up with the idea of a beam search with backtracking, which basically it does the beam and it starts looking. And if it gets to any consistency, it increases the beam size. Oh, okay. And starts looking. So the beauty of that is because English is very contextual meaning the words around us play way bigger role than the words farther away, mm-hmm. uh, that beam never gets very large oh, okay. before it comes to a consensus. So it, it actually will, like the one that I implemented in the part of speech tagger will always get to the right answer because it backtracks and increases the, the, the beam until it comes to consensus. But it literally starts out with a beam of two and like occasionally it'll go up to five. Is this the same part of speech tagger you have in like the the web, the web? Yeah. Um, oh, okay. My, yeah, it's it, integrated into uh, what's it called? Hold on, I got to bring up. I don't have my browser even open. Okay, maybe we can uh, show a link for that at the end of the show. Yeah, we can maybe show a link to the part yeah. of speech tagger that Great. I have online. Okay. Like it, it'll actually go through, and the code is fairly straightforward on how to do it. Like I, I wrote it. To basically give an introduction to how to do statistical learning. So, oh, okay. Is that out on like, GitHub too? Yeah. So cool. it's well commented to try to give people a gentle introduction to this. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, gentle is, is, is what I need there. <laughs> so that would be awesome. I like math. Math is math is nice, but um, you know, I, it's been a few years since I've been into it deeply. Oh. <laughs> uh. Yeah, your background's in physics, isn't it? My like, background you know, is in physics, but it's yeah. a it's a background that's pretty far away <laughs> at this point. <laughs> so is my math background. <laughs> but uh, yeah, goodness. So uh, it's 2017 now. Um, are, are you? What are you looking forward to in the next year? In the in tech stuff, just going on anything that you're kind of excited about? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, definitely uh, some of the, the new stuff in ClojureScript that just came out are really is nice. The idea like we can now infer externs and stuff like that are going to simplify some of the, the things that we do. Um, I think the, the new structure that Reframe has put out, um, like I just implemented it at a client and it is probably the cleanest architecture I've seen on the front end. Nice. Uh, so I'm excited to, to build stuff with that. That's good. Other things definitely still in the deep learning. Um, I want to get a better understanding of recursive networks and stuff like that. Uh, I haven't quite parsed through how they work. Uh, I mean, I, I conceptually understand it, but the math is just beyond me right now. <laughs> so I have to sort of dig into that. Um, other things, uh, just I, I don't have any big uh, open source plans uh, other than I'd like to get my game engine to run on mobile phones and stuff like that and just see what it does. Um, if I write a game, that'll be awesome, but it's definitely lower priority than some other things that I'm playing with. Um, outside of that, I, I mean, I've been looking at Elixir and, and some other things because I still am a language nerd, and there's some very cool things. I have not found anything nearly as productive as Clojure. Um, that's why I love Clojure. <laughs> like for me, and I know it's not for everybody. Like I, I, I understand that everybody's brain works differently, and I have friends that 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 that, that struggle. But I, it is, it literally is the closest way to the way I think. Like, and because there's not a lot of typing for me, like programming is a lot more thought than it is typing. Like uh, I, I tend to 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 think a lot before I start doing something. So I like. I end up typing really fast and, and putting, getting it all out there. And the beauty of the REPL and stuff like that allows me to do it really fast and to get immediate feedback as I'm going. Nice. <laughs> that I'm on the right track. Mm -hmm. so it, it is, it's definitely one of those. Uh, I, I enjoy closure. I definitely enjoy what I do. Like we have the beauty of being in an industry that there's so much to learn. And like there's always something new coming out and, I, I love it. I mean, I love what I do. I cannot complain. I get to work in my basement, which is awesome. <laughs> like some people are like, "Oh, I couldn't work from home." Oh, I love it. I'm a bit of a homebody, and I, it, it allows me to sort of, you know, spend more time with my kids. And it, it definitely is my most productive area. As somebody that suffers a little bit from ADD and self-medicates with coffee, <laughs> not having a lot of distractions is very, very nice. <laughs> Yeah, working from home, um, yeah, definitely has its um, plus sides and minus sides. So I'm glad that it's, it seems like it's got more plus sides um, for you. I don't have a lot of negatives. My kids are, are, are like, my youngest is nine. Um, but they're, they both, like, they'll definitely leave dad alone when he's working. Oh, good. Yeah. Like, I don't get any mm -hmm. distractions down here. I am in the basement, which... Unfortunately, is unfinished. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, I have a heater next to me because it's cold. Um, <laughs> but that's why I think they don't come down here. <laughs> it still has that I'm a little scary basement feel. <laughs> so there's some advantages to that. <laughs> and then you have a very short commute, right? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> whole whole two flights of stairs. It's awesome. <laughs> 
and you do get out of the house occasionally, right, for your for your other activities. Oh yes, um, obviously I get I, I do go out to CNCFP, which is the Cincinnati Functional Programming Group, which is an awesome group. Um, and anybody in Cincinnati or the surrounding area that's listening to this, please come. Yes, you um, get to hear uh, Creighton actually give some of his talks in person, which which are wonderful. Yeah, I'm actually talking this this uh, in February on Valentine's Day. I will be speaking nice. on closure architecture, architecture and closure, building with Legos is what the title is going to be. Um, so I'll be speaking there. Um, since the FP, for those who don't know, was actually started shortly after the first time I met Karen Myers. <laughs> yeah, I, actually... <laughs> I remember that. Yes. I, I I had just started learning closure and I fell in love with it and showed up at a presentation for closure that Karen was doing at the Java user group. And she was the first person I met that outside that in Cincinnati that wasn't uh, one of my close friends that even knew what closure was. Yeah, I, I remember that because I I, uh, I think I asked a question at um, the beginning of the presentation. I, I said, does anybody else uh, have any experience with closure? And your hand actually went up and I said, I want to talk to you afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that's actually how Cincy Functional Programming Group started. Like it started because after that, uh, four of us got together you, me, Ben Kerlack, and Joe Herbers got together and decided to start it. Mm -hmm. But I remember your presentation. It was the first time I had been exposed to your sort of storytelling presentation style. <laughs> I was mesmerized. I was like, wow, that is so cool to, to do talks that way. <laughs> I, I don't have the storytelling ability the way you do, but wow, like that. Like I, I've seen a couple of your talks since then, obviously. <laughs> I, get, I get to preview all of our talks before they go out because since EFP. Uh, she gets to speak there first, so that's always fun. Um, but yeah, some of your talks have been amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're we're lucky. We have um, uh, a good group. So definitely, if if anyone's in the Cincinnati area, um, uh, it's the second Tuesday of the month. Feel free to uh, stop by, and we'd love to have you. Um, so I guess we're we're getting near the end of the show. So uh, as a as a wrapping up thing, when we customarily ask our guests for any piece of advice. Um, could be anything at all. Um, probably the advice I can give to anyone out there is never stop learning. Um, I love what I do. Um, I love programming. I love solving the problems. Um, but part of that is because I get new challenges every day and I, and I love learning new things. Uh, and to be good at this, you really have to do you have to be learning all the time because our industry changes so fast. Um, I would like to suggest that we figured out how to do it right, but I don't think we have. <laughs> like, and that's the beauty of it. I mean, we, we're, we're in such a young industry that we're still figuring out the right way to do things. Like, people joke around about, oh, if software engineers built bridges and all this other stuff, it'd be crazy. But the reality is, is we've been building bridges a lot longer than we've been building software. Uh, and maybe eventually we'll understand it enough that we can build bridges. <laughs> we can build software the way we build bridges. But until then, it, it takes learning every day to figure out the, a better way to do things. Uh, and after more than 20 years of doing this, I, I, I'm still working at it. I mean, I, I definitely feel like 
I, I'm better than I ever have been, but I'm still looking for the right way to do things every day. Um, and every time I get to interact with new people at a client or with new people from Cognitech or, or even just the friends at Cincy FP, every time I get to sit down, I learn so much from people. Like, like every single person I've come in contact in technology has taught me an enormous amount. Like I worked with a guy named Joe Holbrook. Um, Joe, if you're out there, listen to this. Awesome. Um, but he, he took a, he, his mind works so different than mine that I was amazed. Like he was a brilliant engineer, but, and I, I kind of expected that we thought similar, you know, like, well, you know, I'm an engineer. He's an engineer. We should think similar. No, we didn't think anything alike. And it was amazing to watch him work and his thought process taught me an enormous amount about how to approach problems differently. Because he thought so different, it was a way that I could, I, I, it taught me to that, okay, get out of my box and think about this problem this way because there are other ways to solve it. Like he was huge in sort of breaking problems down to their littlest, tiniest piece. And it, I learned an enormous amount working with him. Um, but that's the advice I have. Never stop learning and learn from the people around you. That's a, that's a great perspective <laughs> and advice for uh, definitely our industry. Well, it, it's been great having you on um, the show. Uh, I appreciate you coming and taking time out of your day and chatting with us. And uh, hope to have you on again because you're, you're into all sorts of interesting things. Awesome. Thank you guys for having me. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, this has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc. Cognitech are the makers of Datomic, and we provide consulting services around it, closure, and a host of other technologies to businesses ranging from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at, at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, cognitech.com slash Cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at cognitech.com. Our guest today was Creighton Kirkendall, and you can find Creighton on Twitter at at C-R Kirkendall. That's at C-R K-I-R-K-E-N-D-A-L-L. Our host this week was Karen Meyer, who is at Gigasquid on Twitter. That's at G-I-G-A-S-Q-U-I-D. Think 8 billion arms on Twitter and GitHub. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production is by Russ Olson and Damian Mack. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our Theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm Russ Olson. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 